You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, DJ Jesus 72, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, Hangman Strain, John, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Vanderwood, Richard, Noah, Infamous Florida Man, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Keelhaw Chris, Carcos, Sean, Rotary Coast, MD, Seth, Ghost 750X, Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rumrunner, Madam Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, The Snarlin' Sea Dog, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. So, today's episode is late, and I'm not particularly happy with it. Which is a shame, because I've been through three or four drafts of this episode, and one recorded version that I scrapped. I'm really beginning to see and internalize why so many writers stay away from this story. I feel like I spend at least a couple of minutes every episode we've talked about these characters saying stuff like, we need to remember that this story is mostly unadulterated fiction, and the fiction itself is internally inconsistent and contradicts itself on a regular basis. And I know I don't necessarily need to do that, I mean, you guys get it, but I have this image of, you know, some kid coming along, picking up an episode of the show, turning it on and thinking, wow, these sound like amazing pirates. And I want to be clear to anybody who might not have listened to past episodes that this is mostly fiction, and internally inconsistent. With that in mind, the previous versions of this episode were a pretty in-depth play-by-play of what was happening over the course of the narrative. But I was never happy with it. I had to stop the flow of the story every so often and mention that this is in fact contradicted by something that was said in a different part of the book, 
or that was contradicted by, you know, reality. It's a frustrating tale to try to tell. So I've made something of an executive decision here. We're going to finish talking about these pirates. I won't leave you in the lurch, and there is some interesting stuff that's going to happen. But we've got so much bigger and better things to come that I'm really looking forward to getting to, so we're kind of going to brush past this last couple of years and these pirates of the round. We've talked about most of the stuff that I really wanted to talk about already anyway. The really fascinating part of this story is all of these pirate utopias, these havens that they built on Madagascar. And we're going to kind of finish up with that topic today. At which point we're really just going to be a hop, skip, and a jump to Benjamin Hornigold. When we last caught up with John Bowen, he had just been elected captain of the Speaker. A Mr. Pickering was elected the master, Samuel Haralt, a Frenchman, was made quartermaster, and Thomas Howard was chosen captain quartermaster. Now, I can't figure out what a captain quartermaster is. It's all in caps, so it's clearly a title, Captain Quartermaster. At a guess, it might be an officer who was responsible for the captain's quarters. You know, sort of his personal lieutenant, but maybe isn't in the line of succession should the captain die. Or maybe, and this one seems a little bit more likely, maybe it put the Captain Quartermaster in the line of succession, maybe right behind the captain but without the same duties of the sailing master or quartermaster. What I think is happening here is that Thomas Howard had his own cadre of loyal pirates loyal to him. They may have expected, maybe even demanded, that he be given a position of authority. However, Howard's men would still have been a minority among the crew of Speaker. Since they didn't have the numbers to get him elected quartermaster, they may have insisted he was given this kind of lieutenant captainship under the main captain. He had the experience, after all. We should remember, though, that Thomas White was also on board. However, his rank, if he had one, isn't mentioned. With the elections out of the way and the ship ready to sail, the pirates set a heading for India and there they menaced the Malabar coast for a few months. The details here are sketchy at best, but the pirates captured quite a few significant prizes while they were in India. The most significant, and the one about which we know the most, was probably an East Indiaman under a Captain Conway. I don't have any details about the cargo that the pirates plundered from this East India Company ship, but we can guess. See, she was captured just outside the port city of Quilon. Quilon was an old Portuguese trading post that specialized in one particular export. Cashews. Back in the 1500s, Portuguese sailors transplanted cashew trees from Brazil. Initially, they were mostly there to shore up loose, sandy soil along the coast, but in and around Quilon, the trees really took off. By 1700, Quilon was the largest exporter of cashews in the world, and that's a distinction that it still holds to this day, and cashews were crazy popular back then. The Chinese had discovered a voracious appetite for cashews, but back in Europe, the upper and middle classes had also discovered they were pretty good and wanted as many as possible. 
There are actually some pretty fun stories from this period where Chinese spies tried to infiltrate Quilon to steal some of the saplings. Cashews, though, were a closely guarded agricultural secret. Now, I love cashews, but if I were to come across a ship full of them, you know, several hundred tons of cashews, that might be a little bit too much even for me. However, the pirates would have been exuberant with a haul like that. They would have been extremely easy to sell for an extremely good price. See, the pirates received a very warm welcome from some of the other ports in the region. The merchants at some of the nearby port cities were more than happy to buy their plunder, no matter where it may have come from. In fact, in this case, the pirated source of these goods may have been a big selling point. Mostly here we're talking about Indians, who would have, I imagine, gotten a pretty big kick out of making a profit off of goods stolen from the English. According to a General History of the Pirates, Volume 2, the people in those nearby port cities were happy to provide the pirates with food and drink, any other amenities the pirates were likely craving, and even the most important commodity of all, information. These merchants had quite a bit of inside knowledge about ships that were preparing to depart from other ports. They could tell the pirates what those ships were carrying, how much the merchants here in town would be willing to pay for those goods, and even in some cases, you know, what kind of strength they had on board. And in a few cases, these merchants probably knew all of these in-depth details about ship movements and cargo and strength on board, because these merchants themselves had sold them the cargo in the first place. You know, they sell a few sacks of pepper to a merchant ship, and then tell the pirates about it. The pirates go out and steal the sacks of pepper, then bring it back to the original merchant, who would then sell it a second time for even more profit on the same sack of pepper. So these were easy and profitable times for the pirates of the speaker. But eventually, the East India Company and some less friendly locals began to catch on to what was happening, and the pirates had to beat a retreat. On the return voyage to Madagascar, the pirates, quote, meeting with adverse winds and being negligent in their steerage, they ran upon St. Thomas's Reef at the island of Mauritius, where the ship was lost. This is episode 332, Without Striking a Stroke. Wrecking on a reef and losing your ship was never a good thing, but it could have been a lot worse for the men of Speaker. Mauritius was a Dutch colony in 1701, as it had been for just about a century now. It was named after Maurice, Prince of Orange. That would be the uh, son of William the Silent and the grand-uncle of William III. But in 1701, the governor of Mauritius was a man named Rolof Diodati. He was the grandson of Italian immigrants to the Netherlands. Diodati began his career as a Dutch East India Company official. But while he continued to serve in his role in the East India Company, he moved on to a more overtly political career. His first job there was the governor of Cape Town, and after this stint here in Mauritius, he would go on to command the Dutch outpost in Japan. 
It's actually that job for which he's most well known. You know, the Japanese only had the one European outpost, the one European colonial holding in their territory with which they would trade, and that was this Dutch holding. Now, commanding a tiny little island in the middle of the Indian Ocean might seem like a demotion after a place like Cape Town, but it really wasn't. When Diodati took command of Mauritius, the world was marching to war. It was clear to everyone that England and Holland would soon be fighting the French. And Mauritius was an incredibly important stop for Allied ships. that would, moreover, be under constant threat from the nearby French island of Réunion. It was Diodati's job, and a big job that was, to protect Mauritius. Now, this is one of the first areas and the scrapped versions of this episode that I've cut a lot from. There was a lot more analysis here about the war and the role of a place like Mauritius, but none of that was very interesting. Instead of all of that, I'll just say that it's a good idea to keep a group of heavily armed English and Dutch pirates in your good graces when you're in a precarious situation like Diodati's. So, when Speaker crashed on the St. Thomas Reef, Diodati invited the pirates in with open arms. They had a hospital there that specialized in treating tropical diseases and new arrivals. They also kept a large store of citrus fruit around because they knew that was important for curing scurvy. There were a bunch of pirates who weren't exactly well, some who were actually sick, and they were all seen and treated by the doctors at the hospital there. Once that bit of business had been taken care of, the crew of Speaker were fated. They were served fine wine, good food, all of the pleasures of civilization that Mauritius had to offer were offered to the pirates. Governor Diodati, and I should be clear here, his title wasn't actually governor. I can't pronounce the title in the Dutch, and it wasn't exactly a governorship. You know, there was no king to appoint him. And really, he got his role from the East India Company, which was more closely enmeshed with the Dutch than it was in England. But we're just going to call him governor, which is basically what he was doing. Well, the governor allocated men and ships to transfer all of the cargo from the beached speaker to the shore. But the pirates were still without a ship. So the pirates decided to buy a local sloop and convert it into a brigantine. A process which basically breaks down to taking the lateen rig off the mainsail and replacing it with a square rig. They also transferred over some of their guns from the speaker. Now, the brigantine wasn't going to be able to hold all of the guns that had been aboard the speaker, so... Governor Diodati happily accepted a gift of the excess guns to put atop his fortress wall. He also accepted a very gracious gift of 2,500 pieces of eight. Beyond all of that, the speaker was just sitting out there, beached, unable to sail, but still, you know, mostly intact. As it turned out, there would be enough wood and fittings in the wreck of the speaker to make basically a whole new sloop. So this whole affair turned out pretty well for Governor Diodati. That's the other bit that I cut from this episode. There was a lot more detail in the book, and I shared a lot more of that previously, which was kind of fun, but not terribly relevant. 
It's at this point, though, that the crew of Speaker, formerly of Speaker, here they split up. Their brigantine just didn't have enough space to carry everyone. At this point, the crew split up. The sloop, the brigantine, just didn't have enough space to carry everyone. So Thomas Howard and his cadre of loyal pirates chose to stick around Mauritius for a while. We're going to catch up with them here in just a minute. For now, John Bowen steered his men to Madagascar. The brigantine put in at a place called Maritan. Now, I can't find anything on a settlement named Maritan on Madagascar outside of A General History of the Pirates, Volume 2. And it only shows up right here when John Bowen landed his brigantine there. It looks kind of like the pirates named it themselves. For the remainder of 1701, the pirates set about building a fortress. They had a wooden stockade, they put guns on top, they had houses inside, they set up a farm, and employed some of the locals. Now that's the word the book uses, employ. And we're just going to pretend that that means they actually paid out fair wages, which, if so, I mean, that would be wild. We've talked about a number of other pirate settlements that each in their own specific way were pretty sociopolitically radical, setting up courts of justice with juries and stuff, but a place that actually paid black people honest pay for honest work, that might have been the most radical of all. When we first started talking about the Pirates of the Round, something like three years ago now, we started with Captain James Misson. But it wasn't really Captain Misson that took the forefront of those first few episodes. Mostly, we talked about Utopia and the pirate haven of Libertalia. And as we said, these are the really fascinating elements of the Red Sea men to me. St. Mary's, the island where Adam Baldridge set up his outpost, that was real. The pirate settlement at St. Augustine Bay was also real. This fort at Maritan, and the settlement we talked about last time, built by Nathaniel North, we don't have any archaeological evidence that those places were real. Now, there is a lot of DNA evidence that suggests Europeans were in the region long enough to spread that DNA evidence around, and we can assume that they had somewhere to make that happen. What I very much doubt, though, is that they had the advanced justice system that Nathaniel North's settlement was reported to have, or the anarcho-Christian socialist utopia of Libertalia. Remember, that was partly established by a radical, revolutionary Catholic priest who sailed with James Misson, a man named Caraccioli. Their slogan, for God's sake, was, For God and Liberty. As an aside, I do wonder if Putting such a prominent Catholic character with a slogan like that in your story, I wonder if that suggests some pretty strong Jacobite leanings in the author. More on that later. But here at Maritan, there's less of that utopianism. And to me, that makes me feel like this is more real than North's settlement or Libertalia. You know, there's no God and liberty here. They're not writing a constitution. They're just building a fort in case some enemies arrive. And that's sensible. 
Plus, since John Bowen was real, unlike maybe some of the other people in this story, the author may have felt less comfortable inventing quite as much. By the beginning of 1702, the pirates were living the easy life there at Maritan. But early in the year, some of them began to grow restless with their sedentary lifestyle. They were men of fortune, after all, and they needed to hunt. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Do you remember the Company of Scotland, founded back in 1696? Officially, it was the Company of Scotland for trading with Africa and the Indies. It was their board of directors that were behind the Darien Scheme, the Scottish colony of New Caledonia in Panama. By this point, 1702, there was no New Caledonia. The Darien scheme had failed, but the Company of Scotland was still chugging along and trading with Africa and the Indies. Indeed, because of the Darien scheme's failure, profitable trading voyages were more important than ever. There was a real danger that they might go bankrupt here, and thanks to the high rate of investment from powerful, rich noblemen in Scotland, if the company went under, Scotland was going under. The Scottish company's profitability was the only thing keeping Scotland independent from England. In January 1702, two ships belonging to the Scottish company stopped at Maritan. The smaller of the two was the Content. Sometimes you'll see it called the Continent, but I'm going to go with Content. She was just a brigantine, carrying mostly guns and supplies. The larger of the two carried enslaved men and women. Her captain was a man named Drummond, and he had rounded the Cape of Good Hope just a few months earlier. He sailed over to India, where he traded the Englishmen there some of his English goods. Likely, he bought some spices there, but spices weren't the purpose of this voyage. He was here to buy people. He stopped at Mauritius after India, and I wonder if, while he was there, Governor Diodati recommended that he stop at this place called Maritan. There were, after all, some very nice Englishmen about. Before that, Drummond sailed for St. Mary's Island, where he traded with Edward Welch. Then he headed south. First he stopped off at Fort Dauphin, where he met with Abraham Samuel, and then rounded the Cape, heading for Maritan. 
When the ship arrived, Captain Drummond lay anchor, put a boat in the water and made for shore with his surgeon, his purser, and a few men to haul chests of cargo. Drummond told the men there that he was here to trade in all manner of European goods. Anything that gentlemen such as yourselves might want could be found aboard his ship. A ship called the Speedy Return. I'm going to let Captain Charles Johnson relay the next bit. According to A General History of the Pirates, Volume 2, quote, In the meanwhile, John Bowen, with four of his consorts, goes off in a little boat on pretense of buying some of their merchandise brought from Europe. Finding a fair opportunity, the chief mate, Bowen, and a hand or two more only upon the deck, they threw off their mask. Each drew out a pistol and hanger, and told them they were all dead men if they did not retire that moment to the cabin. The surprise was sudden, and they thought it necessary to obey. The pirates made a signal to their fellows on shore, upon which about forty or fifty came on board, and took quiet possession of the ship, without bloodshed or striking a stroke. End quote. When he says they pulled out their pistols and hangers, a hanger is a sword. It's a cutlass, really. They call them hangers due to the sling in which the pirates carried their swords. Instead of, you know, hanging at the hip like a long sword or on their back, most pirates carried their swords up under their arms, slung over the shoulder, or maybe up next to their chest. Places where it's easy to get to and less likely to get caught up in the rigging. So four pirates pulled their pistols and their swords, told the men on board to surrender, called their friends over, and took the ship. No one was shot, no one was hurt, and they had two new ships in their possession. John Bowen and his pirates outfitted their two new ships. They filled them with guns and provisions, and then they made an offer to the captured crew, the men who had formerly been aboard Speedy Return. Any man who wished to join the pirates could do so, right now today. They'd get equal shares, the vote, and all the freedom they could shake a stick at, and some of the Scots did take them up on the offer. But it's not like this was a join-us-or-die moment. The pirates left Fort Maritan in the hands of the Scottish. They didn't leave them any guns, of course, but they had food and shelter, fresh water, stout walls, and they even had a ship. That brigantine that the pirates got from Mauritius several months ago, that was still there. John Bowen ordered her to be disabled, of course. The Scottish would have to repair the ship, but if they wanted to, they could get her up and running and sail back home to Scotland. And it looks like they even left the men with their cargo, you know, the human beings that they were intending to sell into slavery. That wouldn't work out for Captain Drummond or the Scottish Company or Scotland, as we will eventually see. But the pirates didn't want to ruin them, they just wanted their ships, which were better than what they had. Almost immediately after setting out, Captain Bowen spotted sails on the horizon. The speedy return set out to pursue, but it was already dusk when they spotted her. They lost sight of her during the night, and when the sun rose, the ship was gone. 
Bowen decided to return to Madagascar. Not Maritan, but to, in this case, Port Dauphin. Along the way, the speedy return lost her escort, the content. She'd been lagging behind the whole time, and thanks to the wind, speedy return didn't have time to turn around and look for her. A few days after speedy return arrived at Fort Dauphin, the content limped into harbor. Apparently, she was a leaky tub that could barely stay afloat, so the pirates burned the content and everyone on board went to the speedy return. While they visited Abraham Samuel, he had some interesting tales to tell. The whole country, apparently, was currently at war. Some of this has to do with what was happening with Nathaniel North, who was on the march with his Malagasy allies. But there was other stuff going on as well. To the southwest, Ratsimi Hollow, that son of the pirate Tom Collins, had left Madagascar. He was in England right now, attending school, but that had left a vacancy on his throne, and warfare had broken out in his kingdom, and it was a war that would span the next decade. It would eventually drag Ratsimihalo back to Madagascar, drag in Abraham Samuel, drag in the French, and even, at the end of it, Woods Rogers. We'll get to all that later, though. For now, the pirates headed west for St. Augustine Bay. When the pirates arrived, they spotted an unwelcome sight. There was an English East India Company ship in the harbor there, and company ships were not welcome at St. Augustine Bay. Many of the pirates feared this was an attack, or maybe the attack had already happened, and piracy was over in the Red Sea. Captain Bowen, though, decided to take his courage in his hands and hail the East Indiamen. When the reply came back, it wasn't an East India Company official. It was their old friend and crewmate, Thomas Howard. And that's where we're going to leave it today. Thomas Howard has had quite the odyssey getting this powerful East Indiaman to St. Augustine Bay, we're going to talk about that next time. And then, we're going to set up what's really the last great ride of the Pirates of the Round. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings and reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. You all make it possible. So thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like Grey History, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you'd like to check them out, you can find them on YouTube, Facebook, Bandcamp, or anywhere fine music is found. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.